1: Welcome to this special live edition of the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. SupChina is the best way to stay on top of the most important news from China in just a few minutes a day through our free daily email newsletter, a handy smartphone app, and of course at the website supchina.com. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, and today we are at the 2017 Cornet APAC Global Summit, which is being held here in the amazing city of Shanghai. I am really delighted to be here and am most grateful to be invited. Let's hear from you guys. All right. It is an absolutely fascinating time to be covering China, and not only are we looking at a major party congress that will be taking place in fall in Beijing, but we're also looking at a global economic order that is in the midst of quite significant upheaval right now. There are new populist nationalisms that are on the rise, not only in the United States and in the UK with Brexit and whatnot, but in many countries on the European continent as well. Uh, There's been a turn against globalism coming from both the left and the right. Uh, that has manifested itself in a revolt against expertise, against uh, the dominance of a technocratic and cosmopolitan elite, of which are all a part, uh, as well as the rising tide of trade protectionism that's come with it. As the uh, world's great trading nation, arguably the the, the greatest beneficiary of this whole phenomenon of globalization, of course, China stands naturally to be deeply impacted by this. uh, But by no means is the U.S. retreat from globalism necessarily a bad thing for China. In fact, the other day, Fareed Zakaria of CNN went so far as to say that Donald Trump is the best thing that could have happened for China, and that under Trump, the U.S. is basically handing off the mantle of global leadership to China. uh, In a very important speech delivered at the World Economic Forum's annual meeting in Davos in Switzerland uh, back in January, Chinese President Xi Jinping happily hoisted the banner of economic globalization while getting in some subtle digs at his American counterpart. So China is itself uh, beset by its own significant challenges, though. Uh, Many worry that the the bill is at last coming due for the massive stimulus package that really saw China through the 2008-2009 financial crisis relatively unscathed. China's very high debt-to-GDP ratio has many people very concerned. Growth is slowing, uh, and China's Premier Li Keqiang now puts the likely GDP growth target for the next for next year at 6.5%, which is uh, a, a lot of people would say is quite low but which oddly also some analysts would still consider on the optimistic side uh, on the high end of what's actually possible. Ambitious reforms that were aimed mostly at China's bloated state-owned enterprises have been stalled since uh, the third plenary session of the the current party Congress, which was held in November of 2013. And so for for the last three and a half years now, uh, really not much has been done. Uh, China certainly has made quite a bit of progress in rebalancing the economy toward more consumption and uh, toward services and and away from reliance on fixed asset investment, as I'm sure you heard about today in a lunchtime talk from Andy Xie. But uh, the addiction to fixed asset investments is not something that's been particularly easy to kick There are also, in something closer to your own line of work, uh, persistent fears of a real estate bubble, uh, something I think maybe that has been of of great concern to you folks, and has prompted recently a lot of efforts to try to curb speculation and tamp down prices. So, we are very fortunate in in talking about this gigantic gamut of topics to have with us today, uh, my very good friend Li Xin, who is Managing Director of Caixin Global. Caixin, is anyone who is familiar with uh, with China and, and the world? world of finance and economics here. uh, As they know well, it's easily the most well-respected news publication famous for its very no-holds-barred and fearless investigative reporting and Li Xin has been with the magazine and with its its, its very famous editor-in-chief Hu Shuli now for over 10 years she is originally from the megacity of Chongqing uh, Li Xin graduated from prestigious Tsinghua University up north in Beijing and received a master's degree in journalism from one of America's top J schools the University of Missouri at Columbia uh, while well, she is best known for her work with Cai Jing and then at Caixin. She also recently served as managing editor for the Wall Street Journal's Chinese edition uh, and was there for two years. So having done both English editorial for Chinese publications and Chinese editorial for English publications, she's got great insights to share with us. So please join me in giving a warm welcome to Ms. Li Xin. Thank Thank you.
0: Thank you, everyone. Thanks, Kaiser, for the introduction.
1: So let's talk first about your new role. It's still a relatively new role. uh, Since you came back from the journal to to Tyson. you're now managing director of Tyson Global. Uh, You are no longer just in charge of editorial, but also of the business. So tell us, what is Tyson Global's vision uh, as it expands its coverage and expands its geographic footprint?
0: Uh, Thank you. So Caixin Global is a new venture under Caixin Media. Like you said, uh, it's a most respected finance and business media publication in China. And to uh, describe that to our foreign friends, I usually say that we have three components of our business. One is to bring China's best hard-hitting financial journalism to the world, like the Wall Street Journal type of news reporting. And we also have a uh, expanding data arm. Uh, You probably have heard the PMI in China instead of called HSBC PMI, now it's called Taishin PMI. So we have a think tank under us as well that uh, we try to build up like Bloomberg in China. And also we have a consulting arm uh, that is like the Economist Intelligence Unit. So putting all this together, we try, uh, the uh, the bottom of that is we try to bring the hard-hitting Chinese uh, trustworthy financial information to uh, our international audience because throughout the years we've been asked for that. Uh, when, uh, like Kaiser mentioned, the founder of Taixing Media, Hu Shuli, when she set up a financial publication called Taixing Magazine all the way back to 1998, when the Chinese financial market was pretty nascent at that time, Uh, Some of the foreign journalists will travel from Hong Kong to uh, Shenzhen every weekend to buy a copy of this bi-weekly magazine and get the scoops out there. So we do a lot of investigative reports. We do a lot of uh, deep analysis. We identify a lot of trends. Actually, one of our problems is we're probably too early Like uh, some of our coverage are like two or three years before that came into a big problem or became uh, 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 exploded into the big uh, into the international scene. So now we finally take that to the international stage, and I hope uh, you are enjoying our coverage as well.
1: So your boss Hu Shuli is really widely venerated. I think certainly among American reporters, but also within the financial community as well, uh, known to be really kind of dogged and fearless, and uh, uh, you know, unquestionably. Very ethical, uh, terrific reporter, terrific reputation. Uh, what is her secret? I mean, I think there are a lot of people who really want to know how she is able to do a lot of the things that that sh- that she does. How she gets away with the kind of coverage that she does, uh, the op-ed pieces that she often runs, which can be quite critical of of state policy uh, and take on topics that are generally regarded as off limits to other state uh, state media. So. <laughs> how does she do it? I know that you're not going to be able to tell me too much, but, uh, you know, what wh- What can you tell me? And then maybe talk about some of the big stories that really put you guys on the map in the first place.
0: Okay, sure. Uh, so she has been branded by the Wall Street Journal as the most dangerous woman in Asia, or <laughs> uh, by the uh, Time magazine as the uh, 100 most influential people in the world. So
1: make you second most dangerous?
0: <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. Uh, yeah. So she, I think, looking back in the coverage... Uh, Uh, We have several secrets, uh, which is nothing new to news organization, but we have a Chinese China twist of that. One is rock-solid investigation. We have to be completely thorough in all our investigation, the information, because we're serving people like you, the business community, and this is the information you have to uh, base your business decision on. It's something they have to trade on, so we have to be completely thorough on that. And uh, some of the investigations are very long, and uh, it takes a lot of time to do this. Uh, one example would be, if you remember the Enron coverage, how that broke out in the United States, there was a Wall Street Journal reporter sitting at the desk for someone else and reading the, the annual filing from Enron and noticed something fishy from the footnote. And she then started to chase this. And after a half year or longer than that, uh, she broke the story that Enron might be cooking its book. And that followed by the investigative reports by other, com- other media. And eventually, Enron was brought down. Almost the same year, China has a similar case. That is, one uh, young reporter, 25 year old, did a story on one of China's most highly valuable listed company uh, in the A-share in the uh, domestic stock market. And the thing is, she couldn't publish it because the company is so influential, and she couldn't publish at her, uh, exist, at, at her old publi- publisher, and they even stopped her from investigating on that. So she took the story, come to Huxule, at that time she just set up the Caixin magazine and took the story with her and find a new job, and it took her another half year to go through all the records and uh, publish that after one year, so the company collapsed. And you know what? In China, Enron was known as the U.S. version of Ying Guangxia. Ying Guangxia <laughs> is the Chinese name of the company that was brought down. So I think the secret number one is be completely solid in your investigation. Don't leave any host to your enemy. Be the enemy of the regulator or the enemy of the commercial side. And the second is a very Chinese, China unique secret that is patience because we are under a tight regulatory regime than elsewhere. So sometimes you have to wait. Waiting meaning it could be one year, it could be two years. But there are a lot of stories that eventually come out. Some of our biggest investigations on the corrupted official, the reporter thought that that report would never see the light of the day. But after one year, the political wind changed and she could publish that. So be very patient because there are always more stories than journalists. And there are always exciting stories in China to cover as a major transition of society. But now, of course, there are a lot of stories in America to be covered as well.
1: And, and we've both covered a lot of these stories as journalists in China. Uh, but you've done it from both sides. You've done it both working for The Wall Street Journal and for Caixin and Caixin and in English. And we, we both pay quite a bit of attention to what's going on in journalism and, and have formed maybe a lot of ideas about the way that Western media has covered China. China. Um, last year, Jeremy Goldkorn my, my partner here at, at the Seneca Podcast And I, we talked to a New Yorker Writer who is actually from Chongqing Just as you are, her name is Fan Jiayang uh, Jiayang Fan And she had a really interesting Thing to say about uh, Western media coverage of China She said that when she looks, when she reads uh, The New York Times and the Washington Post And what whatnot, She feels like she's looking at an x-ray She says that it's Anatomically, extremely precise. There's no gain saying it. it, it it's it's very accurate. Uh, you can see, the, you know, the bone structure very very well. It's it's uh, perfect precision. But she feels like that it's it's missing the connective tissue, the flesh, the blood, the things that make it sort of an organic uh, part of a body that she's familiar with. She feels that the, that maybe that is missing in English language news coverage of China. Do you, do you have a, a take on that? Do you feel like that may be the case? Or?
0: I think. Uh it's very when you want to read about something you want to go to the most original source if you want to read about trump you want to go to the new york times or Wall Street journal you want to go to the u.s papers if you want to read about angela merkel you probably want to read about der spiegel so you would believe that the locals understand their situation best because there's so many nuances right. in the in that a lot of complexities in this and also the relevance I've been covering U.S., I've been covering China, but when you cover your home country, you feel a lot more because it's relevant to you, and uh, that's the first uh, point I want to make. And Also, given the the, uh, the, the, the number of the bodies in, in the ground, so compared to the foreign media, which only have a bureau here, Bloomberg is very large, they probably have 50 people on the ground in China, and the Journal probably has around 10 to uh, 15 yeah, people, 15 20, yeah. and uh, uh, New York Times less than 10. So. Uh, in media organization like Caixin, we have more than 200 reporters and editors, and also it's, uh, it's easier for us to get access and being trusted by the very skeptical Chinese regulators and the Chinese sources, which are, tend to be more camera shy than our U.S. Correspond- uh, our US counterparts. So th- I think the, it's, uh, it's not that the uh, international media don't want to cover China very well. It's the we have the home 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 field uh, uh, advantage of that, and also I think increasingly the, it's more sophisticated and nuanced in their coverage as well. I remember listening to uh, Jim McGregor, who was the uh, bureau chief of Wall Street Journal, um, maybe 10 15 years ago, and he said one thing he regretted was. Um, in the 90s, uh, the, the, so much of the U.S. coverage, of their coverage has been focusing on human rights or the political change, and then missed the bigger story that is the China on the eve of an economic takeoff. Because these are the underlying trends that are easier to be spotted by the local publication, I think.
1: Right. Very much. Okay, I mean, I, I certainly have my own time. The, the one issue that, that comes up with me a lot uh, when I'm thinking about Western press coverage of China is, is that If I'm back in the U.S. where I live now and I buy a copy of the New York Times and I'm flipping through it and I read a lot of negative coverage about malfeasance by some U.S. elected official or another, if I read about a crime wave happening in some city. I am not going to assume uh, that this is this is the end of the world. I, I have context. I have the rest of the newspaper, which offers a lot of other reporting that, that isn't going to you know have me up in arms. So when we look at the sort of adversarial way that, that media uh, defines itself in, in America, and especially you know recently within in this presidency, I, I'm I'm obviously uh, rooting for them. I think that they they do a good job. The Fourth Estate has a very tough job right now. Now, and I, I see that they're stepping up, and I'm very happy to see that. But is the mission different when they're covering a foreign country? Do they, w- when they're writing only you know three or four stories uh, in a newspaper about a country of 1.4 billion people like China, and those stories are going to, to have a bias against the quotidian, against the everyday, they're going to be those sort of exceptional things, and they're going to be generally not stories where dog bites man. They're gonna be the man bites dog story. Uh, But the readership maybe doesn't have that context this is what I worry about. Do you, do you have a thought on, on that?
0: I think the uh, uh, they're increasingly ex- some of the papers are increasingly expanding the readership and the position themselves as more global, targeting to the global audience. Mm-hmm. Like New York Times set up the uh, global New York Times division that's just helping them to shape their coverage better. So they have editors actually reading the coverage every day and say, are you talking directly to our U.S. audience? Are you talking to the global audience? So that's their effort. Uh, similar with Cai Xing we are much smaller compared to our international. National counterparts, but we with session global, we want to be speaking to the global audience, especially global business audience like uh, you, are, you are in the in in the room.
1: One thing that's happened in recent years is we've seen a lot of, of U.S. news organizations set up Chinese language coverage. Uh, this has been successful in some cases now, but we have the Financial Times now. Bloomberg has uh, quite a bit of Chinese coverage now. Uh, the Wall Street Journal, where you worked. Uh, even the New York Times, uh, even though their Chinese language site is blocked in, in China. Uh, what is the strategy? And do you think that they're going to be a meaningful player in the actual Chinese language media market going forward?
0: Media organizations, media companies are companies. So for companies, it's easy to be hooked by the idea of the China number that you have one billion readers or half a billion readers will be a big number for you. So, and also, it's quality information and China needs quality, high quality information. So it's it's an easy... Uh, decision. It's easy rationale to come to. Mm. But for international media to set up uh, Chinese language operation here, d- they do face a lot of regulatory barriers they don't face elsewhere. So they have to be navigating that market very smartly. And it ev- seems like everyone chooses a different niche. Like, uh, what's your journal? Chinese is very vibrant now on social media. And uh, Financial Times Chinese is very has a very good commentary uh, section. that They take a lot of commentaries from the local commentators. And uh, bus- Economist now has a, a business Chinese language app and they're reaching out to the campus and try to build connection with the next generation of business leaders. So everyone is adopting some uh, somewhat different and try to uh, amplify their comparative advantage. But I think in terms of the impact they leave on the Chinese uh, audience, I think it's huge because they are really bringing very good, high quality and a different perspective that Chinese audience should, uh, should, should be aware of how the world is seeing China. And also, they are, by the time they set up the Chinese operation, China is transferring to a reliance of traditional media to a more vibrant internet media. And if you take a look at, I don't know how many of you here use WeChat or have heard about WeChat. It's a very popular Chinese app. And if you look at this little Chinese app that has 700 million users, and on this WeChat, they have... 12 million public accounts. Public accounts will be deemed as almost as a media outlets. And once you have that many outlets out there, they can aggregate information, they can spread the information much faster than, than anyone else. So the foreign media, uh, their outlets are making use of all these tools available, and they are adding a lot of very credible and very nice uh, information into this landscape.
1: Let's um, move now to to uh, political season that's happening right now. The two meetings which are held in March, the uh, National People's Congress and the Chinese People's Political Consultative Congress, which are sort of a, a often dismissed as a rubber stamp parliament and a consultative body that brings in a lot of very wealthy people and some celebs. Uh, but, but interesting things happen, and uh, from this particular uh, set of two meetings, Premier Li Keqiang, for example, set a new very low or, or a 6.5 percent growth target, GDP growth target, for for next year. Uh, why don't you we talk a little bit about some of the important metrics that have come out of out of the the, the numbers that have come out? I mean, for example, in uh, the Availability of credit and the money supply and things like that.
0: So the first number that came out, uh, everybody paid attention to, is the GDP growth number. That's six point five percent, and it says about six point five percent because last year they said uh, actually set up a range of that between six point five and seven uh, percent. So this is as. Uh, the bottom line set for, the government set up for itself because in order to achieve the goal of doubling the GDP between 2010 to 2020, 6.5 is about uh, the minimum they, can, they have to achieve every year, and they actually aim to be higher than this. So setting this goal is a very conservative and somewhat uh, realistic goal. Uh, behind that is the government paying more attention to the actual quality of the growth. We, we, we often say that the government is facing a tremendously important problems, and they usually have two buttons in front of them. One is growth, one is reform. And they push these two buttons uh, every once in a while, one sometimes on the growth button and sometimes on the reform button. Chinese economy, has to undergo some fundamental changes in in its balance, and that is the reform. But in order to carry out the reform, they have to be able to sustain a rising non-performing loans. They have to be able to take many hard uh, decisions, close down some uh, zombie SOEs, and also to uh, create more innovative sector and increase the efficiency. But once they push harder on the reform button, the growth will slow down, and we saw that later last year. And once the growth slow down, you have to create uh, employment. You have to uh, uh, sustain um, the the, the industries. So they push the... Growth button hotter, and behind the growth button, the two engines of that one is the real estate, and the other is the infrastructure building.
1: Yeah, so I think these are the maybe we've identified these two yes. severe addictions that, that the Chinese uh, leadership suffers from. One is fixed asset growth, and we'll, 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 fixed asset investment as a driver of growth. Let's let's leave that for now and talk about the other one about real estate, and then mm-hmm. uh, l- explain for our audience maybe what wh- how it is that that China is really caught on the horns of a dilemma. Uh, Uh, in terms of its dependence on seeing real estate uh, prices continue to grow and at the same time being very, very worried about bubbly situations?
0: Well, real estate is in everybody's minds these days. As we are convening this conference here in Shanghai, throughout the last several weeks, there are uh, uh, restrictive measures coming from the government, Uh, many local governments on real estate buying, housing buying. And there are a lot of stories circulating on the social media on... uh, unthinkable prices of real estate. One example was uh, a two square meter house, even though you call that a house, can charge 38,000 US dollars in one of the uh, uh, better school districts in Beijing. So uh, a recent survey come out this this uh, this week shows that more than 50% of Chinese think the current real estate price are unthinkably high. But why, you use the word addiction, why is there addiction to the real estate price? And why, it cannot go down, it can, can only go up in the last 30 years growth in China. A, because part of that is because China has been growing so fast and the real estate price has been catching up with China's growth but exceeded the Chinese growth space China's growth pays uh, a couple of years ago because the ample supply of liquidity and the liquidity has to find a venue and they goes to the, the, the real estate and also because the governments have to rely on the real estate for their own uh, fiscal income the local governments unlike uh, many other local governments in the world they don't they get a smaller share of the tax tax income uh, compared to the central government. So in order for them to carry out the projects they have to do, they have to have a solid, reliable income revenue, and they that is by selling the land. So the land-selling fee uh, constitutes major income for the local government for, first, for the first place. And for the central government, they have to rely on the real estate for the growth, like I just mentioned once the real estate is up, the, the, you have more commodities, you have more uh, construction-related activities, the, the upstream and downstream in, uh, industries can chump on, uh, can, can chunk along. So if, if, they, if they need a quick solution to boost growth, real estate is the easiest. Just now we mentioned the uh, infrastructure, so the actually the dragging effect, the pushing effect for real estate compared to the infrastructure is for one percentage point of real estate uh, growth you actually need to have 2.4 percentage point growth from the infrastructure and fixed assets in hmm. investment.
1: It's sort of a dangerous... Uh, yes, dependence. so they are pretty much
0: hijacked by the real estate industry.
1: Really, yeah, very much. Let's talk about, I mean, th- but how much of a problem really is it? When we look at, at the uh, residential realty market in China, there's very little leverage in it compared to, to other markets in the world. Uh, I saw recently a statistic that something like 80% of homeowners actually own their homes free, I mean, uh, c- completely out in, in China. And uh, right now, if I were to, to decide to buy property in Beijing or in Shanghai, I would need to pay something like 50%, right? Uh, 60%, I 60%, think. 60%, pretty 60% much, down payment. For, uh, uh, down. Uh, does that mean that, that, that China does not resemble the US in like, say, 2007, 2008? I mean, because if you look at the leverage in, in the American real estate market during that time, it was just, you know, it was absurd. It was absolutely absurd.
0: The leverage in China is very, very high in terms of the uh, the M2, the money insurance. That's the M2 to GDP in China is 200, percent whereas it is 80, 80 percent in the United States. But the leverage is primarily on the corporate side,
1: right? Not in, in not so much in the residential. Right. So that's
0: actually the hope for many that when they say China wants to de-leverage, you are deleveraging from the corporate or from the financial institutions to the residential. I mean, the Chinese residents, Chinese people do have a lot of savings, and that it's unfair to unload all the burden and uh, and add leverage on them, and, but the real estate is more of a social equality problem. It's, not, it's, more, it's more than just an economic problem that creates so many social anxiety. Um, it's a popular ang- anger and also it, uh, it decreases the social mobility that young people who graduated and stay in the major cities don't think they can afford. Uh, the rail stays here anymore and they will move back. And the, 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 It's very disillusioned for them. Also, the urbanization in China has been concentrated mm-hmm. in the one, two, three, four, maybe the four biggest cities because the resource has been concentrating so much in the mega cities. So rather than urbanization, it's more like a mega uh, metropolitanization or mega cityization. So once you have the unfoldable Unaffordable real estate prices in these big cities, there's definitely going to be a brain drain and uh, it's for them they lose a lot of growth opportunities.
1: Well, let's turn now and talk about um, China and the United States in the era of Trump. This is something that I've, yeah. I've been very, very keenly interested in. I've, I've talked to basically all of my guests in recent months about this particular topic. Uh, it's, it's been quite a rocky start. It started off very bad. Uh, Candidate Trump, of course, beat the war drums very, very loudly about China, about imposing a 45% across the board tariff on Chinese imported goods. He talked about declaring China a currency manipulator on day one, which of course he hasn't done. Then things got to a a real nadir with the the phone call between Tsai Ing-wen, the uh, leader on, of Taiwan, uh, what the Chinese media would, would put in quotes and call the president uh, of Taiwan. And uh, of course, things have, have got with with Tillerson, during his confirmation hearing, he talked about blockading Chinese access to artificial islands in the South China Sea. Things looked really bad, but... Things turned around, they seem to have turned around very quickly with Xi Jinping's phone call, where apparently Trump has acquiesced in China's formulation of the One China policy, not to be confused with the One Child policy. And uh, of course Tillerson recently uh, on his very recent tr- just concluded trip to Beijing seems to have actually accepted much of the language that China has, uh, has often used to talk about the, uh, its ideal of the U.S.-China relationship about win-win, about mutual respect for core interests and things like this. Where do you see things happening? We have a, a, actually a question from the audience actually about wh- whether you foresee the U.S. having a less active role going forward in Asian affairs. What do you think that this all portrays? tens so far?
0: I think the, when China brings up for the, uh, for the U.S. challenge, they increasingly see that in two layers. One is how to deal with Trump, and another is an increasing sentiment that uh, reciprocity, that whether China's, the, the rules China has been setting or the structure China has been setting up to deal with the U.S., is that fair enough? Because time has changed So let me start with Trump China has exerted so much patience with Trump Because they Mm -hmm. understand that Trump is not predictable So don't provoke him and so far in the diplomatic cause and uh, in, in other arenas, China tried to stay as calm as possible. And the, the, the stance that pres- President Xi Jinping is taking to visit Trump uh, in early April, and that's before, the visit will be, is slated before the uh, Treasury report, U.S. Treasury report will come out and say whether China will be a, a manipulator of currency. So all these stands are preemptive and are very, uh, very good stance that try to manage uh, the uh, very unpredictable uh, president. And also, I think China is also exploring the channels and try to f- identify a project so they can uh, have the ownership with Trump. China used to have a project with Obama, and they spent several years to find out that, which is climate change. That is, both countries are championing on the climate change, and China has haven't. Uh, it, it would be great if China can identify a project to share with Trump as well. Also, to identify the channels they can talk with them. The U.S. and China used to have the SED, and then changed to SNED. But these channels keep the con- communication open between the two uh, administration, and it's important for China to uh, continue uh, or maybe to find more th- out-of-the-box new approaches to communicate with Trump administration. Another layer of that is uh, we heard a lot from the uh, previous CDF, the the China Development Forum, happening in Beijing over the weekend, that even the free traders, even the leading economists, or even the the, the, uh, ex-U.S. officials that really, really supported China now start to ask the question, wait a minute, are U.S. really getting the short end of the stick when they deal with China in terms of WTO and and the trade and all this? Because the rules are not so equal. Let's say uh, Larry Summers, the ex U.S. Treasury Secretary used an example when he talked to with us and when he talked to with the Chinese Premier Li Keqiang as well, the car industry. So chi- for China to export cars to the U.S. is almost non tariff and Chinese companies can set up their car factories in the U.S. with almost no restrictions. Of course, they have to go through the CFIUS uh, investigation. But for U.S. companies to export ta- cars in China, tariff is 25 percent, and also in order to set up a factory here, they have to do that through joint venture. So the question is, uh, all these rules is understandable if China is at the early stage of development and just enter the world, uh, the, enter the global uh, trade uh, framework. But now China is leading, one of the leading economies and is much more mature as a market economy, is it still fair to have these unbilateral rules? Right. So China is getting, I think China needs to understand the sentiment. I, I believe they are uh, understanding the sentiment and get ready to have probably more bilateral talks and revisit some of the existing rules.
1: At the same time, I mean, both you and I were in Davos when Xi Jinping gave that now famous speech where he sort of, you know, uh, held up the the banner of economic globalization and and said that China would sort of rush into this void that that many people perceive as being left now as America retreats from uh, from globalization. Uh, Do you think that that China really stands a chance. I mean, it's now pushing a lot of these international initiatives. Um, there's even talk now that China will uh, will join the TPPs now that, that the United States is no longer in it. Uh, we, we see China pushing Xi Jinping's signature initiative, the the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, the RCEP, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, a number of other uh, infrastructure initiatives aimed at maybe even supplanting the Bretton Woods uh, institutions that we've, we've lived with so long. Do you think that China is ready for prime time in this way? Do you think that that, that they understand what's really uh, in play here?
0: I don't think China is ready, and I don't think China wants very much to uh, take the center stage on the, uh, on the globe to be as a leader, as the U- U.S. was uh, doing in the last couple of decades. I think don't forget, uh, like you just mentioned now, there is a big uh, political conference coming up in China, and they are getting ready for the big personnel changes and uh, to set a lot of uh, – set his own house clean. And has, it's facing enormous internal challenges, the rebalance of the economy, the uh, leverage problem, the over-liquidity, and every right. single one of them are keeping them awake at night. So having, assuming responsibility as the, the leader of the global system is, I don't think that's high on the priority list. But like you said, uh, also we heard that from George Soros as well. It says, U.S. has done the Trump, Trump has done more to make China an acceptable global leader than Chinese could do by themselves. So this, Chinese has been advocate of free trade and a global, a liberal global trading and investment system because China is the most, is the biggest beneficiary of it. I think China will continue doing this. And holding up the existing uh, global uh, trade free, liberal trade system, but it's that's pretty much it. I don't think China is ready to go further to go beyond this. One of the things that
1: we've seen, of course, is is really aggressive uh, rollout of overseas direct investment from China. Uh, and, and again, at, at Davos, Xi Jinping had promised another, I think it's 260 some odd billion dollars in, in additional uh, overseas direct investment. A lot of this is corporate MA. and uh, Since we are here at Cornet, I think it's, it, it would be interesting to talk about to what degree uh, China can sort of in, in, engage with a lot of the uh, multinational corporations that are represented at a conference like, like this about uh, corporate real estate. I mean, they, they set a bigger footprint in, in international markets. You think that's uh, something that will be of interest?
0: I think, for, well, China's overseas investment has been rising in the last 10 years. And especially last year, you see a 44% increase year on year. And it's uh, the, the base was low, but the last year was a bonus year for Chinese overseas investment. There several... But if you study closely, there are several rationales of it. One is uh, diversification of uh, assets. People need to move their assets outside the country. And also looking for more opportunities overseas because there is obviously an overcapacity problem in China. And another is because the the high valuation of domestic uh, stock market that whatever company they buy overseas, if the concept is accepted by the domestic market, it's easy for them to boost the valuation Mm -hmm. at home ground. So if they buy... um, something like uh, three, four multiple, with three, four multiple overseas, the public can get 30, 40 multiple at the home market. So all this... Created uh, more worries for the regulators, and starting from later last year, you can see increasingly the regulations come out to um, disencourage uh, some of the investment overseas. And actually, we will see regulation coming out uh, this year that the, the Civil Department, Joint Department, are putting up the effort to uh, have a tough regulation on um, going overseas. So, if we compare 2016, 2017 will be what, what we call a small year if 20. 16 is a large year. This year probably will be a smaller year for Chinese overseas investment. And part of that was capital, tight capital control as well. So um, I'm not an um, expert on the uh, corporate real estate market, but I would imagine that there will be uh, more Chinese players uh, overseas, but less in terms of value. So you will probably won't see that many big players, but more of the Chinese. Uh, uh, private Chinese players who already have some assets allocated overseas, they probably will be more actively trying to find more active ways to use their overseas offshore assets. Right. But for the fresh money coming from China, that will be hotter and harder.
1: In the time that I have left here, that we have left here, I'd like to, to get a couple more audience questions in. Early on, we had somebody asking about what the best way forward is uh, for North Korea. I know this isn't something that's necessarily in your wheelhouse, but I think this is, we, we both are avid readers of the news. Do you have a, a position on whether American diplomatic efforts, Chinese diplomatic efforts, are going to yield anything right now?
0: I think U.S. wants to have, a, it seems like U.S. wants to have a quick solution, and China has been fending off the desire to coming up with a quick solution because it's, this is very explosive and uh, highly complicated. I don't think any uh, quick uh, solutions will be feasible, and uh, we don't have that in sight. And as for a more uh, dramatic solution, in, in, including use of our forces, uh, China as a neighbor of North Korea and also South Korea as a neighbor of North Korea will definitely consider the massive immigration problem if anything drastic happens. That's right. Yeah.
1: That's right. I think that we need to remember uh, that... North Korea, the the regime there, the Kim Jong-un regime there, is not just looking at, at its immediate neighborhood, they're, they're looking around the world. And one example that they look at uh, with, with a lot of, uh, I think, uh, trepidation is the example of Muammar Gaddafi, who was persuaded to give up a nuclear program in 2003, and eight years later ended up getting hauled out in, from a ditch and shot in the head. Uh, he doesn't think that, that this is a, a particularly good outcome, and it isn't exactly encouraging for him to... to uh look at an example like this, or for that matter of, 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 of Saddam Hussein, who you know, was hiding in a little spider hole and then got hanged in an American jail, right, so not, not, a, not a good outcome from there. So we, I think we need to exercise what's called security dilemma sensitivity here and understand uh, how the North Koreans might view things and stop just dismissing them as merely mad. Uh, Another couple of questions from the audience, some very good ones. What do you think is the most pressing domestic issue that China faces today? What are the most well let's 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 say domestic issues. Let's stay with domestic issues. If you had I mean, is it uh, is it a real estate bubble? Is it uh, the debt crisis? Is it pollution? What is it?
0: I think, the information or the signal we got from the clo- uh, the recent uh, National People's Congress is risk. They want to prevent financial risk, systematic financial risk, and they have been emphasized that on multiple occasions that they really have that in their mind, that the leverage ratio is so high, uh, uh, many, uh, the, 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 um, the mass of stimulus is losing its steam or losing its effectiveness, and also the corporates and local governments are so deeply in debt. So any of those collapse, including the high real estate price, the high bubble, are all bumped up because of the high leverage. So I think that's uh, the, the single most important risk that they are watching against. And they will try to do um, not, def- not to uh, per- burst the bubble, but uh, try to uh, deleverage gradually this year. That's why they're switching from more expansionary monetary policy to a more cautionary monetary
1: policy. At dinner last night, we were talking about how so many of our friends are leaving Beijing uh, and how a, one of the major factors driving them out of that city, that otherwise lovely city, is the horrific choking pollution that we all have to face. I mean, I, one of the reasons that I left after living there for 20 years is that I have young children. And I felt kind of guilty about condemning them to a fate of upper respiratory disease for the rest of their lives uh, by living there. In spite of all our efforts to, you know, religiously use our air filters and the masks and whatnot. Uh, what you, are you optimistic about China's efforts to curb pollution?
0: Well, we, when we think about the pollution, air pollution is the most visible. And uh, you read that in the news, you saw, that on the, you saw that on the paper in the TV screen, and there were two prolonged spell of uh, heavy air pollution this winter, and that drive a lot of people out of the city. But the government has been made massive investment in this area, and a lot of private, private partners have been invited to create solutions. As far as I heard, they are actually a very massive uh, kind of a grid system. They do a uh, the 60 meter by 60 meter monitoring system on the polluters, they mon- and they build up the massive system to see who is polluting and who uh, whether they are out of their quota. So for the air pollution, I think they've been dealing that with a couple of years, and now they come up with the uh, action plan. Whether how soon that plan will take effect, it's left to be seen. But I think they are tackling this at a very aggressive level. But something more worried, uh, what, what more worrying me is the soil and water pollution because that's less visible, especially the soil. Um, that's directly linked to the food safety. And We're talking
1: about heavy metals like yeah. cadmium. In, in, in right. yeah. Part uh, of that is coming
0: from the uh, water uh, pollution as well because the underground right. water has been heavily polluted because of mining and because of the illegal dumping of industrial waste. So... Putting all this together, you got uh, more and more disease spreading in the farm uh, in the farmlands, and also um, the food safety is a is a key issue. the worrying Chinese uh, life qua- people middle class Chinese worry about the life quality, and the safety of food is on top of their mind. And part of that is the soil
1: pollution. Well, I want to be mindful of your time. I, I know there were other questions that we'd like to be able to get to, but uh, I need to, to take this out. And uh, before we do, let's, let's give a big round of applause for Lee What uh, What a delight to be, ha- be able to have you here to chat with us. And I look forward to seeing you in the States next month. That'll be fun. Thank you. Lee Sin, thank you. Thanks, everyone. The Sinica Podcast is powered by China and produced by me, Kaiser Guo, and Jeremy Goldhorn. Check out the app and subscribe to the free email newsletter. Uh, You can follow SubChina on Twitter at News and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash SubChinaNews. Our final segment is we we do quick recommendations of things for our listeners. And so why don't we kick off, what do you have for our listeners this week as a recommendation?
0: I think tomorrow is the birthday of one of China's most famous poets, Haizu. He's a modern poet. Haizu, Hai yeah. yes. And uh, I would encourage people to read uh, some of his poems. He was like
1: an 80s, 90s He's 80s, 90s, very right, famous,
0: right. but he died at a very young age, at the age of 25.
1: Right, right, right. Uh, my recommendation for this is, is actually uh, something that that uh, was on the BBC. The BBC has a podcast called Murder in the Lucky Holiday Hotel uh, by their longtime China Bureau Chief, Carrie Gracie, who's a, a delightful reporter. It's a brief podcast series about the 2011 murder of the Englishman Neil Haywood and his involvement in what I think is the most fascinating chapter of recent Chinese political history the fall of Bo Xilai, who was the former mayor of Li Xin's hometown in Chongqing. Uh, who challenged Xi Jinping for sort of primacy in in the uh, uh, the hierarchy of Chinese politics and is now doing life in prison. So uh, thanks very much. I really I'm very grateful once again to Coronet for having us here and to Li Xin for for being here. Thanks, Kaiser. Thanks.